0: If you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of John. We'll be looking at verses uh, 1 to 7 in the 14th chapter. If you've uh, just joined us, we have started a summer series on the Apostles' Creed. And for our section this morning, we'll be looking at the part of the Creed that begins the, the sec, second portion of the Creed, which goes, I believe, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Um, So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your truth to us. We pray now that as we read it, that your spirit would go out and open our eyes and ears, that we would hear and see things otherwise we could not. We pray that you would do a work in our life you would take our hearts, hardened as they are, and you would soften them and make them into good soil, such that as the seed goes out into good soil and returns of fruit, that the word would go out into our hearts as seed and produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, again, if you are joining us, we're glad you're here. If you're visiting for the first time, glad you're here. My name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And you may be asking... Why study the creed? Why study the Apostles' Creed? And I just want to do a brief reminder of a couple of things that we talked about uh, a few weeks ago as to why we're doing this to keep that in front of us because I think it's important. One of the reasons that we're studying the creed is because we are, in fact, a creed people. We said this. We said that we we live each day by a thousand creeds, and some of those creeds uh, we might have mentioned: YOLO, you only live once. Um, Be your truth, right? Um, or live uh, life, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Those are creeds. Those are creeds, things that we live by. I'm actually uh, interested in hearing, as we go through the series uh, this summer, what are creeds that you have listened to, uh, that you have lived by, that you have uh, noticed, uh, or maybe creeds you didn't notice that you live by, that you do now, um, and how they have shaped your life. I'd love to hear those over the weeks this summer. But what's important about creeds is not so much the ones that you adhere to, although that's important. What we said about this is what's important is are the creeds that you aren't aware of that are shaping your life and directing your life and causing you to move in a certain direction. One that I came up with, I didn't come up with that, I just remembered it uh, this week, uh, was the creed, God helps those that help themselves. And I have come into contact with many people, and this is where our our creeds get us into trouble where some people believe that's actually scripture. And so now we're in a really tough spot. (laughs) Now that's, there's a problem there. Um, What happens when our creeds uh, overlap and we're not able to distinguish what is really true? Well, what we need is a real creed. What we need is something, a version of what is true to bring us back. We need a real creed to measure all other creeds from, and that is what the apostles creed has been for almost 2,000 years for the church. That's why we say it uh, on Sunday mornings and why the universal church says it as well. The second thing I want you to remember though, as we look at creeds is that we are looking at them as a map. You might remember this metaphor where maps show you the terrain and layout of a place. The creed gives us the terrain and layout of reality, of life, of scripture. Creeds are not scripture, I want we'll make that clear again, but they function as a condensed version to guide us. The Apostles' Creed, we said, acts as a map of reality for us. And in this way, it invites us back through its opening words, I believe, to see and to know the world as the Bible sees it. Not necessarily to see and know the world as you may have seen it over the past six days out there in the real world. The Apostles' Creed comes to us in a Trinitarian form, you might have noticed by now. And this week we come out of the section of the Father and into the section of the Son, the second member of the Trinity. And this section of the Creed, as you'll notice as well, is the largest portion of the Creed because it deals with salvation. As one scholar puts it, it is the longest because it is the most important. It concerns salvation, the point of our lives. Something to think about. So we're just going to look at those three sections of the creed as our points this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And in there, we'll see the controversy in the creed. We'll look at who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is God. And we'll also see and look at who was born of the Virgin Mary, how Jesus is human. So let's look at that first one. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Let me start with a question question that will sort of loom over the entire sermon, even though it starts with this point is what does it mean for you to say that Jesus is Lord? It's a rhetorical question, right? What does it mean for you to say that Jesus is Lord? Or to put it another way, Jesus, Lord of what? And that's the title of our message this morning. Jesus, Lord of what? Two friends are walking on the beach and they look out over the ocean and they're just sort of awestruck by its beauty, right? by its majesty, uh, just how God has created this and, and, and sort of getting taken up by its beauty. You just sort of have this moment of Jesus, you must be Lord of all. You are Lord of all. You're Lord of all creation. I'm sure at some point they burst into Psalm 19 like we all do. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above his handiworks, right? It's sort of. Oh, let's take this in, sort of like Clark Griswold on top of the Eiffel Tower, if you've watched that movie. Maybe not. Just taking it all in. Then they turn around, and they notice these beautiful houses, beachfront houses up on the shore, looking out over those oceans, and they begin to admire those houses. They might even begin to think, what would it would be like to live in one of those houses, until one of them does turn to the other and say, if Jesus is Lord, why am I not living there? You might get or have said something very similar, right? How can we look at the world we live in in one moment and be overwhelmed by God's lordship and even sort of submit ourselves to his lordship and his creation of all, but then we can turn around and look at something else and really see it as a reflection of our own circumstances, something we either have or we don't have, and wonder, God, are you even in control? Are you Lord? And if you're Lord, what are you Lord of? Now, obviously, beach houses is a little bit of a stretch, but it proves the point, at least, or points us away, points us towards the fact that our circumstances dictate so much of what we believe about God's lordship in our life. So much so that we aren't really sure, I think the right question is, as as what God is Lord of. And for Christians, I think we're almost even afraid to say that as we walk in here, And sort of begin to digest the week that we have had, the circumstances we found ourselves in, the jobs that we might have lost, whatever happened to my family, my friends. And we begin to ask ourselves, yeah, what is he Lord of? Well, if you're asking that question this morning, I just want to first say that is okay. That's a good question to ask. Because I think our creed helps show us just exactly what the Lord, what, what Lord that we profess is Lord of and over. And my aim is for us to sort of digest that as we go through the creed, but then to figure out how do we live that out before the world? Even when sometimes our life circumstances don't always line up with what it is that we're professing in here, right? What happens when what we say in here on Sunday morning doesn't seem to line up with what we see on Monday at work? And in this first point, I want us to get at this by looking at how the creed affected Christians in the first through the fourth centuries. It's important to sort of run through the creed in its historical chronological order. I think it's also interesting because it helps us understand why did this portion of the creed get written? Because up until this point, we don't have the section of the creed that we just read. Um, This thing didn't sort of pop out of nowhere at once. The full full portion of the creed that we did read showed up at about 700 AD. But it wasn't until the 4th century that we get the section that we are looking at today. So how did it encourage Christians back then? And then I want to look briefly in this point at how it encourages us today. Saying Jesus is Lord then. It can be hard for us to understand exactly what we are saying when we say the words, I believe in Jesus Christ. His only Son, our Lord. When we say those words, it sort of sounds like there's a little bit of redundancy there. Aren't those all the same things? Well, not exactly. See, I I, I want to look at this, first of all, through the context of a Jewish convert. If you were Jewish in this first century, considering the claims of Christianity, it wouldn't be a problem for you to say that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, you wouldn't become not Jewish anymore. Why? Why? Well, because it was part of the Jewish faith to look for Messiahs, which Christ is the New Testament word, the Greek translation of the word Messiah, right? You were being a good Jew if you were looking for the Messiah. And many people found them, And many people called different ones Christ because that was the Messiah. But then that person would die. And at some point you'd have to think, well, maybe that wasn't him. Let's go look for the other one, <laughs> whoever God is sending along in this story of salvation. But the point is, is that it wasn't un-Jewish to necessarily put that title on somebody. Okay? In the same way, putting the title Son of God wasn't necessarily by itself uh, an implication of di- divinity. Scripture can and does use this description to describe uh, certain individuals who, for various reasons, have a special relationship with God. Again, the point, much like Christ, you could say this as a Jewish person and still be Jewish. What ultimately separated Christians from their fellow Jews in the first century is the name Lord. And you'll notice in the Old Testament it is in all caps. At this point you are no longer being Jewish in the first century. To describe to Jesus the title Lord. Because that title belonged to the God of Israel only. That's why it's capitalized in the Old Testament. It's a specific name. And if you were to put that name on somebody else, you are saying that that person is God. You're giving the name which belongs only to God himself to somebody else. And so when you say that Jesus is Lord as a Jew in the first century, you are drawing a line in the sand, as it were. You are saying that this person is is in fact God, that he is Lord. And it carried huge weight and implications for those who would convert over to Christianity. Many lost their families. Many were excommunicated from their towns. It is what made the creed controversial to those in the first century. But it wasn't just Jews converting to Christianity that the word our Lord created controversy. It was Christians as a whole in the face of Rome and in the first First three, third and fourth century, third, third, first to the third centuries, right? Who experienced the full effects and the full consequences of calling Jesus Lord and not Caesar. This is where we get all of the persecution of those first centuries as the church was starting up. See, it is to this end that martyrs were burned alive, not by calling Jesus Christ or by saying he's the son of God, but by calling him Lord. Say that Jesus is your religious enemy, God. Pray to him even. But you must not call him Lord. Only that right is reserved for Caesar. Why? Because Caesar thought that he was God. Well, for rule's sake anyways. Enough to control the masses. But then something changed dramatically in the 4th century. Under the Emperor Constantine and the national acceptance of Christianity, believers found themselves now in the majority culture. In other words... Calling Jesus Lord in the fourth century, well, that didn't seem so controversial after all. It was a whole new world to live in where Christianity was accepted nationally and major persecution by Rome had stopped. So in just 400 years, right, you have two completely different worlds that you're living in, two completely different settings in which you are calling somebody Lord, but having two completely different responses and reactions to that. In one setting, this could and often did result in your death. In another setting, it actually got you elected. But that was then. What about now? Has anything really changed? When I look out at the cultural landscape, and perhaps you might agree, I still see people being persecuted for claiming that Christ is Lord. But I also see a lot of people getting elected for saying it as well. In Fort Worth, it's difficult to see how proclaiming Jesus sometimes as Lord today is at all controversial, unless perhaps you converted from a different religion, or maybe if you don't live here and you lived in another place that was extremely hostile to Christians. But that's because proclaiming Jesus as Lord is one thing, and believing that he is Lord is another, which the creed is guiding us and showing us. See, our circumstances change, and what we see often influences what it is that we believe. How would your answer to the question, Jesus, Lord of what, be different if you lived in the first, second, or third century of Rome versus how you would answer that question if you lived in the fourth century or fifth century? Would he no longer be Lord, depending on which one you lived in? depending on what you experienced. See, for many of us, this is troubling because calling Jesus Lord in here on Sunday can be a completely different experience than what we experience in the real world on Monday. As we said. And this sort of saying one thing here and seeing something else causes us to cry out, who is really in control here? Who is really Lord of this world? And what the creed sets out to establish is that either Jesus is Lord of all or he is Lord of nothing. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he isn't Lord of anything. Life, our circumstances will always paint us a different picture for how we see and understand and believe that Jesus is Lord. And if I'm honest, what I want to believe, what I I want to be true Is that when I profess that Jesus is Lord, I want that Lordship to always look a certain way in my life. This is if I'm honest. I want it to look a certain way in my life all the time, no matter what, so that I know that He is Lord. And you might even put in parentheses there so that I can actually stop believing that He is. Isn't this what we mean when all of a sudden life happens? Isn't this what we mean when, when all of a sudden things don't go as they planned, as we don't get the beach out? Somebody else does? We begin to question, is God really in control? And what we want is some sort of like idea, some steady idea of what we want our life to look like. Because we really want to be in control. We really want to be Lord. But if we had that, the creator wouldn't have to ask us to believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Proclaiming Jesus is Lord is far different than believing into, as we said to you three weeks ago, believing into that claim, giving our lives over to that claim, submitting to that lordship with whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether first century Rome or fourth century Rome or 21st century America. That's the point of the creed over the centuries of context and injustices and blessings. And it's how it acts as a roadmap of reality for us today. When we look around and wonder, is Jesus still Lord? Is he still in control? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. For us to say that Jesus is Lord today in any circumstance is to say that who I am is determined and bound up only in Jesus himself. And that's a controversial statement. Because you are saying that this is the way and there is no other way. Which is an exclusive claim in a now pluralistic society. When you say that Jesus is Lord today, you actually are saying that you believe in absolute truth and not relative truth. When you say that Jesus is Lord, you believe in sin and you believe in your deserving of judgment because of it. You believe in heaven and hell. You believe that salvation is summed up in the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth and the life. You believe in the need for substitutionary atonement because just being good doesn't cut it. You believe you can't earn your salvation. You believe in the tools of grace and mercy to change the world because that is what changed you. And you look forward to the life everlasting because this world is not all there is. Now, did you know that that's what you are saying you believed in and what you're, what you were professing to when you read the creed this morning? Probably not. I know I wouldn't have if I wasn't preaching this sermon. Be like, yeah, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. All right, let's get. Where are we eating for lunch? That's what I'd be thinking. But the power in the creed is not demanding others, for example, recognize Jesus' lordship. Can't force somebody to do that. That's been tried. Didn't come out really well. At the same time, I don't know that the answer is to somehow return to a 4th century cultural climate where everybody is a Christian. Rather, the power comes in how we live and love others whatever the circumstance that we find ourselves in. Because Jesus' lordship is There isn't this blanketed, this is what it looks like in all stages of life. It just is. No matter where you find yourself this morning. And your ability to live out and underneath that lordship in each of those circumstances is what is every bit of what this world needs to see. Because if we don't answer the question, Jesus, Lord, of what as the church? Who is going to answer that question for us? Well, this gets, this is a very lengthy first point, I realize. But let's move into the Creed, and this is much shorter points. And my hope is that these next two portions of the Creed will give us the confidence to know that both our Lord is powerful enough to be Lord, but also personal enough to care about my circumstances and to care about the atonement that I need. Uh, More than anything for sin. Um, So, the second point here, which is the second line of the creed, is who was conceived by the Holy Spirit? How is Jesus powerful enough to be Lord? Is a question that the early um, church fathers asked themselves, and perhaps it's the question that you might be asking yourself in some shape or form this morning. And the way that they answered that question was to make sure that we connected his nature. To God, right? To make sure that people knew that Jesus wasn't sort of just this you know, wonderful prophet, but he was God himself. And so the Creed includes that in this language, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it might seem like a funny way to say that he's God, but the point of the Creed sets out to make was that Jesus was not created by Mary and Joseph in the quote-unquote biological way that probably you and I were created. Why was this important? Well, as we said, this section of the Creed didn't show up until about the 4th century um, with the rise of the Arian heresy. Arius, who is the founder of the Arian heresy, was an Alexandrian priest. All this stuff sort of came up in the church, remember. And he claimed that the word logos what starts out John's gospel, was not was not divine, but it was creature. Therefore, Jesus was divine only because God exalted him to divinity, was his claim. For Arius, Jesus was not already divine in his humanity. God made him divine after his resurrection and ultimately in his ascension. Now, when we look at the arguments in Scripture that Arius was appealing to, we can understand where he was coming from. The attempts to understand Jesus, uh, his attempts to understand Jesus was to go with what seemed the most reasonable by reducing the mystery of Jesus and what man can comprehend. And for Arius, for those that followed his teaching, they rested their claims of Jesus on what are known as the subordination texts right? the, subordinate, the subordinate passages of Christ, passages where Jesus seems to subordinate himself to the father, or at least be uh, in nature less than God. Texts like, I come not to do my own will, but the will of my father. My teaching is not mine, but it comes from him who sent me. I can do nothing on my own authority. The father is greater than I, you get the picture. And at first glance, Arius seems to have a case here. Maybe Christ is inferior or maybe he is subordinate to the Father. Maybe God did make him divine only after his earthly ministry. But it was because of this, the Nicene Council then was formed, which is where we get the Nicene Creed, to combat this challenge. As Luke Timothy Johnson in his book, The Creed, points out, and this is in your bulletin on the front page, the Creed maintained that salvation meant our sharing in God's life. And that only God can give us such a share in God's own life. A mere human cannot elevate other humans to the level of God. Christ was not a human being who achieved divine status. Christ was rather the way in which God became human. And through that humanity made it possible for all humans to share in the divine life. That is a mouthful. Which gives way to just even trying to unpack any one of these statements. So the language conceived by the Holy Spirit speaks to God's acting in history on behalf of mankind, apart from mankind. Jesus wasn't a creature who became divine. Jesus was fully God from the get-go. Today, the creed as our map of reality, as we're calling it, pulls us away from the ditch of seeing Jesus as God, but maybe somehow less than God. It pulls us away from seeing him as subordinate or inferior to the Father in nature. In this way, the creed functions as a quote-unquote whole gospel. Otherwise, the only gospel that we would have would be live a good life like Jesus and maybe God will make you divine someday, which is no gospel at all. But a modern-day heresy that lives on underneath the subordination text of Ari- the Arius proclaimed is the beloved Jehovah's Witnesses. This is what this still looks like today. This is why we need a creed today. They see Jesus as an example, not God himself, not the second member of the Trinity, as conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right now you have some dialogue the next time they show up at your door. Just kidding. But what the church has always held to since the council is that what was subordinated to the Father, and this is is the kernel that comes out of this for you all. What was subordinated to the Father in Christ was not his nature, but his will. What was equal with the Father was not his will, but his nature. As one scholar writes, Jesus' task on earth was to obey, but the person who obeyed was equal in nature to the Father. I'm not going to begin to say anything that's going to help us understand exactly what that means. This is one of those mysteries, as we'll see later on. But because of this, and this is the point, Jesus is powerful enough to be Lord of all. Because he is powerful enough to defeat sin and death on your behalf. Anything less than Jesus, not, anything less than deity here in, in the nature of, of Jesus would not be allowed to do this. This is why Jesus can say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. Lastly, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus is also human. Again, these two kind of go together. Well, they do go together. But the Nicene Council uh, that that started up in the 4th century knew uh, that with Marcians, which are Gnostics, those are the ones we talked about two weeks ago, who denied the humanity of Jesus, and with Arians who denied the divinity of Jesus, left little room to speak of one aspect of God's nature, of Jesus' nature, without the other. Therefore, the creed follows with the statement, born of the Virgin Mary, and these two go together and they shall never separate. But it creates the mystery, as we said, of all mysteries. How can God be 100%? How can Jesus be 100% God on one side of the equation and 100% man on the other? Also known as the hypostatic union. How is this possible? Well, thankfully, G.K. Chesterton cleared all this up for us when he says, Jesus is not like an elf or a centaur. There you go. Half human and half something else. But he is holy God and he is holy man. Sometimes simplicity is the best way to keep it at this point. Well, the council was trying to put into words which could not be put into words was the idea that Christ did not just, as one scholar puts it, transform his divinity into flesh, but rather he took his humanity into God. One, one goes even further when we get to the ascension is that Jesus' ascension was carrying the humanity into God as trophies for himself. How wonderful a picture is that? It was a gain. It was not a loss. And this allows Jesus to be personal. This allows Jesus to understand you. This allows Jesus to be acquainted with grief here. This allows Jesus to be personal. This allows Jesus to share in your joys. As fully man, his life then is also able to atone for yours. For it being conceived of the Holy Spirit pulls us from the ditch of seeing Jesus less than God the Father. Being born of the Virgin Mary pulls us back from the other side of seeing Jesus unable to fully substitute himself for you. And if he cannot substitute himself for you on the cross, there is no longer a way for salvation. There is no perfect life to give you. Justice is still not satisfied. But the good news... That set the world afire, as Peter Kreff writes, was not the great truth of God is good and so on and so forth. But the great news that set the world afire was that God had become what? A man. That he died to save us from sin. And that he rose from death as well. Jesus' divinity is powerful enough then to defeat sin and death. But his humanity is perfect enough to atone for it. And that's why you need both of those things. You need both and you have them in Jesus. And this is why he, to come back to the beginning, is Lord. And this is why you can have confidence in him in this way. This is why you can trust, regardless of your circumstances, right, that that, that who Jesus is, both in a 100% God, 100% man, right, that he was powerful enough and he was personal enough to take the weight of the world upon himself and to atone for my own personal sin, but where does this leave us? What's the so what here? And I realize I'm running late on time, but look, creeds and good theology, all that stuff, right? It's good to keep up here. You got to have it up here, but at some point you've, it's got to land somewhere, all right? We can't just walk around with this up in our heads. And so to use those metaphors again, right? The creed, good theology, right theology, even as we want to say sometimes in our reformed camps, they have to be both the anchor, right, and the engine that leads the church to answer the question, Jesus, Lord of what? Let me say that one more time. Our good creeds, our good theology, the stuff that we love to talk about over coffee and beer and everything else that God made that's good, right, has to both be the anchor right, and the engine that forces the church out into the world to answer the question, Jesus, Lord of what? To believe that Jesus is Lord, as I said, cannot stay up here. It has to land somewhere. It must exist in two places at once, both the head and the heart. As one pastor put it, Jesus did not leave us with the great commandment, read good books and get your theology right, although I'm sure he is for those things. But Jesus left us with love God and love neighbor. Why? Because Jesus is the way. Because he's the truth. Because he is life. Because he is Lord. And perhaps this was the way that he intended for the church to answer the question, Jesus Lord of what? And the way that we lived and that we loved the world and those around us. The way that we shared life with one another. The way that we showed others that we don't just profess his lordship. We actually believe it. And the way that we live. Good creeds and right theology then move us out of ourselves. And into relationship with God and with others, it frees us to do that because of the truth that it proclaims. And in turn, those areas become the arena in which we answer the question, Jesus, Lord, of what? I have lots of examples, but I've got to rein this in. Let me give you a couple. What about my work? Right? That's a big question. How does this work in my work? Jesus is Lord of our work. Is he not? Of course he is. Which means that workaholism, which is prevalent in me, is telling your family and is telling others that Jesus what? Isn't Lord. It's that simple. So do you honor the Sabbath? Can you put your work down for any length of time and rest in the work of Christ as Lord over you? Jesus, Lord of what? See, this, this has to move us out into some place. It can't stay up here. Parenting, he better be Lord. Our finances. When's the last time we sat down and talked to somebody about what it looks like for Jesus to be Lord over our finances? And I'll I'll go easy on you this morning. We'll exclude Steve Foltz for a second. But for members of this church, when's the last time you sat down with an elder just to talk about your finances? To garner and to learn what it is somebody else has learned possibly about what it means for Jesus to be Lord over my money. And see, we think that if we go to an elder in the church, that elder or pastor is going to tell us just to give our money away. And so we don't. Now, I'm, I'm not going to, I'll tell you to give some of it away. I'm not going to tell you to give it all away. But here, here's when we put this thought in your mind I need you to come ask me about finances and about your finances. Because I need to see that Jesus is Lord over all. I need to see us engage in a topic that I am so afraid to engage in myself. I need somebody to ask me if I'm tithing. I need to see that worked out in my relationships because it can't stay up here. It has to go out there. Right? Jesus is Lord over our finances. Our theology causes uh, us to move out of ourselves and into relationship with God and others. Lastly, schools. Huge topic. Personal topic. But is Jesus Lord over school? Yes. Which ones? All of them. All of them. And here's why this is important. Look, I'm not railing, right? But what I am saying is that if we believe that Jesus is Lord over all things, especially schools, then this allows me to move into my neighborhood or next to my neighbors or wherever it is, people in here who have different options for schools for their kids, and ask them questions about that. How can I encourage you in the way that your kids are being educated? What are the ways that I can pray for you? Because I'm not so caught up in my own story, my own life. Because I believe and submit to the idea that Jesus is Lord of all things. I need that conversation happening in my life. And I suspect that many of us do here as well. But again, this is how Jesus has asked us to show the world and to answer to the world the question, Jesus, Lord of what? In the way that we live and the way that we love others. Good theology, right theology, good creeds can't stay up here. It has to get out and land somewhere because it frees us. We were driving home uh, yesterday. Sorry. It's been a 14-hour drive. And we, we were listening, Ada and I were listening to this episode of, um, I'm closing with this. This episode of, um, and my next guest, which is David Letterman's new thing. And we hadn't listened, I hadn't heard any of it before. But uh, it was, it was interesting. It was good. Whatever. Um, His guest was George Clooney. And that was what became fascinating. And it's about an hour long deal where he goes in and he just gets to talk to George Clooney and George Clooney shares about his life and all these things. And somewhere near half of that, halfway through that whole episode, he begins to press George Clooney on his quote unquote humanitarianism. I mean, if if you follow Clooney, if you don't, it's totally fine. But if you you know if you know a little bit about his life, the guy has done some amazing things in this world, and he can right. He has he has the power to do that, which is with his status and, and things like that. And that's one of the reasons why he does it. And so so Letterman's pressing him on it. and He's asking him, "Why are you doing good? Like what 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 what, what tells you what is good?" And and so so you know, Clooney goes into his work with Dufar and 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 all of this uh, just amazing, amazing work that he's done that I hope he keeps doing. But then he gets to the kernel of why he does what he does, and he talks about being a Catholic. This is not a shot on Catholics, by the way. And he talks about going in and and growing up in a small town in Kentucky and, and doing confession. He said the problem with doing confession in a small town is that, well, the priest knows who you are. He recognizes your voice after so many years. And so at some point going in there, you realize, I can't tell this guy everything. So, you'd tell him a few things and he would go home, and it was just like a throwaway comment. Letterman wasn't expecting this. And Clooney goes on to say, I would go home and I would put a pebble in my shoe for everything I didn't tell him. And then I would jump off the bed. And (laughs) Letterman shocked, sort of says, Are you still doing it? Are you still doing that? Or have you you got away from this sort of hocus pocus stuff? And Clooney sort of joking, but says, I gave it up last week. But you, you think about that for a second, and you think about. It, and he goes on to talk about the guilt and the penance that he must give for for his life, and he goes on to talk about it in terms of just I had the success, I got lucky, I got to do something with it. And look, I'm not saying anything bad about humanitarianism. We need more people like Clooney doing these things. This is great. Just love for them to be Christians too, right? Um, What's the point here? Let me wrap this up. The point is this. Bad theology, bad creeds enslave us. They enslave us. But we can still do some pretty good things. Good theology, good creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, and Jesus' life-giving words of I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those what? Those free us. They do. They free us. But the question that you are forced now with as you go out those doors this morning is they free us to do what? When? Where? How? Why? It's got to land somewhere, people. It's got to get out of this head. And how we answer those questions as the church today is how we answer the question, Jesus, Lord of what? Lord of what? Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his words to us. That we can know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That we can know truth. We pray, though, Lord, that you would give us grace and mercy as we attempt to live that out as you have called us before each other, before our neighbors, before our families and before this world so that we may have the opportunity, whether actively or passively, in the way that we think about all that you are Lord over. So that we may have the opportunity to offer a question to somebody who is looking for answers. The question, Jesus, Lord, of what? You are Lord of all things. Be with us as we fail miserably with this. Give us strength and courage uh, to move out into this world, believing it anew um, and afresh this week. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.